Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Dolly, how are the British Book Awards? Great. Those cats know how to party. <laughs> I think you pre-prepared me. <laughs> I actually didn't. I was still thinking about the fact that right before we started recording, I had a bit of a hungover extended go at Charlie for putting us third in his Twitter bio of shows that he produces. That's a quite a high form of pedantry, that. I know, sorry Siege. Dolly late at night on Twitter, BDIs. I do sometimes go on to it to see if you've reordered it, because there was one point where we were a bit higher up, I think. Aren't these things you're meant to keep to yourself? <laughs> I think I'm too hungover all the time at the moment. Too much candour. You are reintroducing your hangovers to the high. I know. But I actually really enjoy it because it shows that you've got some leisure time back. And yeah, yeah. I said leisure. So much more fun <laughs> the way they say over there. Um, British Book Awards were great. It's basically like Glastonbury for publishing. Like My friend Rose, who worked on the campaign for Everything I Know About Love, said at one point she looked over at these two men in their mid-60s and they had like three glasses of Prosecco in between each finger, like toddling along back to their table in the same way that you would with like four pints heading across a field. I think that just sounds quite 90s. It was quite, it was actually very 90s. Publishing is quite 90s, I always think. Publishing is so 90s, but why is it so 90s? I wonder if it's because in, in like all the books and films that I watched growing up where there was like a glam lady, she always worked in publishing. Maybe it's that. Well, you, you've just made me think now that everything is like um, Daniel Cleaver since I sent you a picture of a dress and said your tits would look great in it. <laughs> I think I'm gonna... saying thanks, Daniel Cleaver. <laughs> I think I am going to buy that dress. What, is skirt off sick today? <laughs> My I, skirt is I've off seen, sick today. Uh, It is. I've seen your gusset once already. How are you doing? How's your weekend? Uh, I've been binging on the latest series of Killing Eve ahead of hosting a panel this evening for the BBC. I'm very excited to meet Villanelle. I oh, will so sexy. Yeah, we'll be trying to get a selfie with her. I think I would try and snog her, actually. Right, that's your hangover talking. <laughs> News from the last week has included the sacking of Five Lives radio host Danny Baker after he tweeted a picture of a small chimpanzee dressed up in a suit sandwiched between two humans with the caption, Royal Baby Leaves Hospital. Baker claimed he did not intend to be racist, but he later clarified that he understood the historical racism of equating simians with people of colour, quote-unquote. I actually felt quite sorry for Danny Baker and I felt sorry for him while also completely understanding why he was sacked Mm. and agreeing that that was probably the only appropriate measure that could be taken. It's just, I think it's such a, it's such a complex thing because anyone who follows Danny Baker or knows of him knows that he does just have a very daft sense of humour. He's like one of those people who 
does find like you know animals dressed up in a silly costume to be funny and I do think that he would have tweeted that photo had it been a baby crocodile in an outfit but the fact is partaking absent-mindedly or unwittingly in racism is a huge part of racism and has to end and those involved do have to be reprimanded and the zero tolerance to any form of racist abuse or marginalization it does create a culture where we all think about our words and actions and how they affect those around us which I think is the only way we can move Mm. forward but I equally I also think it's important to differentiate between intentions and I see a lot of people saying it doesn't matter if it wasn't badly intended it's exactly the same and I just don't think that that's reasonable rational thinking I think it's just as damaging and I think it should be called out and reprimanded and I think it should be punished if we're all committed to to a fair and progressive world but I also think intention should be considered not for a more lenient punishment or to act as an excuse but for but for our understanding of that person and their ethics does that make sense totally makes sense I think as well it's just like the danger of social media before thinking things through before committing something out there I mean it's a, it seems very obvious to you and I that's certainly not something that we would do but um, I definitely don't think that I'm safe from making an ignorant mistake in my life um, no. I'm pretty careful now with social media because you know it just takes an instant mm. to make a really bad decision and I really worry that humans are always going to be ignorant we're never not going to be ignorant no matter how much we're trying to learn and I feel like we're trying to learn so much at the moment and don't get me wrong this is learning that needs to be done yes but the rate at which we need to learn I feel like is faster than the human psychology and the internet is just going to keep getting in the Mm. way Mm. of that but as you say we can have empathy whilst also agreeing that it really was the only outcome And, and it's hard as well because it's you when people talk about political correctness gone mad or a culture of fear um uh, it's difficult because i think a culture of fear is the only way that we're going to start being careful and considered about what we say i I don't think a culture of fear is a bad thing thing. i don't think that political correctness gone mad is a bad thing I i think that's the only way that we can move as fast as we should be moving but it's a world, it's it's striking a balance between living in a culture where people have to be careful uh, about their thoughts, the images they share, the way that they treat people, while also still being reasonable and rational, I think. My sister thinks that we'll get to a point where unless you are completely freelance, if you're attached to any publication or any corporation at all, that your social media will get vetted before something goes up. What do you reckon? I don't think that's the strangest idea in the world. That that I don't either, actually. I don't either. And Doris Day has died, age 97. I feel like you might be a big Doris Day fan. I adore Doris Day. It's so strange, because my mum and I often try and work out where it started, because my mum wasn't buying Doris Day films when I was a kid, but when I was about seven, I just discovered her. I don't know where. Maybe there was a film on TV or something. But from the age of seven onwards, I had a monomaniacal obsession with Doris Day. I watched all her films, all her old musicals. I had all her albums. I watched her, the Rock Hudson films that she did a bit later on uh, in the 60s, which if anyone wants to have a Doris Day binge this weekend, I highly recommend because they're so charming and uh, mischievous. Uh, and beautifully shot 
And I really, I don't cry when celebrities die often, but I was really distraught yesterday. I was watching, I was really upset about it, Um, even though she obviously lived a long old life. I just think for me, she's such a treasured performer of the 20th century and her uh, films mean so much to me. To people who have never watched Doris Day, what's their essential primary education? Can you give a couple of winners? Uh, that's a great question. I think it would be first Calamity Jane. I think is her best musical, and the the score to that is uh, so so good. And she's just peak Doris Day as we knew her publicly. Although she actually had a very very dark uh, personal life and a darker side to her that wasn't so public. But it's very kind of sunshiny and peppy. Um, and she's just her voice. She has this this timbre of honey in her singing which I just loved so Calamity Jane and then my other favourite is a film called Young at Heart with Frank Sinatra that I think is was made in the early mid 50s and it's one of my favourite films of all time and it's actually even though it's a beautiful music and again very peppy very charming it's a really interesting look at uh, depression and kind of uh, nihilism so I recommend all of those. And I think we should just hand over all the music of this week's episode to Doris Day. I'm going to try and watch those. Thank you. You're my um, my archive authority. <laughs> Very happy to be doing that job. Also in the news this week, a rather grim story from the Netherlands where tulip farmers are erecting barriers around their fields to stop tourists trampling through their crops to take selfies among the flowers. Is that fair enough? Feels fair enough, doesn't it? Totally. It just made me despair a bit. (laughs) Didn't it make you despair? Yes, it does make me despair, but it also doesn't surprise me. Also in grim news, there has been a 40% increase in fly tipping. It's a horrible habit, but I do think it stems from council restrictions on how much rubbish you're allowed to generate. I I really struggle with... I could do a whole podcast segment about this. Christ... I have so many opinions on this. Can you distill those opinions into 30 seconds? Uh, I think... Bullet points? (laughs) Um, Do you know what? I'm actually too scared because I'm worried it's too controversial an opinion. But all I would say is there is a reason Camden, as a borough, has such a problem with vermin. It's like a river of vermin. Because of the fly tipping? Because of fly tipping, but because of the restrictions yeah. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. bin collections in the ca- yeah. in the borough. Every, every single bin on my street, you li- every single week, my husband has to sit on top of the bin yeah. to squash it in because they won't take it. I know. It's a real issue in London, and I think that's probably quite a large part of why it has risen in six years. Because also, it's a terrible as habit. well, you have to remember that bin restrictions haven't risen, but we all get so much more delivered. Yeah. I don't buy anything in store. I get everything, you know... Books, groceries, clothes for Zadie, anything, nappies. I get it all delivered. Yeah. And that all comes in packaging. So yeah, the packaging, I mean, itch. as we all know, Amazon is the the worst for it. But the, the waste of the packaging with Amazon. Amazon's actually... I find Amazon better on most things because it's recyclable. And when I get books and stuff, it comes in a flat package. It's yeah. when you get like a box within a box. Yeah. Anyway, we're not doing a podcast on fly tipping. I can see how you nudged us towards that. <laughs> Bringing it back to Jeremy Kyle. The Jeremy Kyle show has been suspended after a guest died shortly after filming. Oh my God. I'm fascinated, to be honest, how this show is still going in this day and age. The bear baiting of vulnerable people. Do you ever watch it? I don't, I have So to I say. sometimes catch it and it is 
toxic yeah. I do not use that word lightly so little good comes of this public mm. humiliation mm. I really hope it stays off air I hope that whatever you know we don't know any we don't know anything about the death of this guest it was after filming we don't know anything at all it's enough for them to have not only suspended it but to have pulled all shows off catch-up player but um, i agree with you irrespective of that i just hope it's what, an opportunity what, to think what totally. show should we be showing at totally. this time especially and what does it serve well a lot of people watching that show are probably people on maternity leave that's a like a really enriching thing to watch or unemployed people if you're unemployed is that really what you need to be watching generates people from low economic homes so it is quite literally watching a highly educated sort of argumentative man win like yeah. it's 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 such an oddly classist um kind of roman like you know like you're watching from a podium it's it, it's yeah, extraordinary I, to me it's extraordinary to me that there's not there's not more about how damaging that show is so anyway we'll see what happens with that what else doll I love this story from this week. A town in the Philippines has introduced a law making it illegal to gossip. Those found guilty of spreading rumours face fines of up to £15 plus community service. How do you love this story? I think it's the most terrifying dictatorial... Love it. The crackdown begins... It's like the Handmaid's Tale. The crackdown begins in the summer because that's when they estimate is the worst for gossiping and gassing. I anticipate the sales of cheap rosé will uh, plummet dramatically. I don't know if cheap rosé is a thing in the Philippines. They must be interlinked. Rosé season, gossiping. They completely go hand in hand. Speaking of gossip, how many hours or minutes a day do you think the average person gossips? Uh, I was trying to think about you and I. I was actually talking about this the other day. You and I don't gossip really at all, which is quite rare for me. Friendship and our discourse is never about, talk about like fly tipping. But isn't that kind of amazing? I can't yeah, remember nice. the last time we talked about like you know tittle tattle about someone. Tittle tattle. Um, how many minutes do I think? Twelve. Fifty-two. Fifty-two minutes a That's day, according to a new study from the University of California, Irvine. Participants wore a portable device which recorded conversations twenty-four-seven. About three quarters of the sample conversations were neutral. Only fifteen percent was unkind. I found that quite heartening. I think a lot of that as well will be workplace. That's the only thing that you have to bond with other people, really, in the workplace <laughs> is talking about other everyone people. else in the office. <laughs> yeah, it's. Weird. I'm very interested in the psychology of. Gossiping. It's something I used to talk about quite a lot in therapy, actually. I don't think that, you know, when people are like, oh, I had a really, you know, just have like a really good bitch. Like, I don't think having a really good bitch makes you feel good. Well, you don't bitch about anyone. No, I do bitch. But I, feel... I, I really don't think you do, I have to say. No, no, I really do, Dolly. I really do. So you're just doing it about <laughs> really me do. I really with do. CJ when I'm not here. Uh, but I, do, I, do, I don't think it, I don't think it's a catharsis for a lot of people. Actually. Yeah. But it's interesting because it does... Uh, it's an inherent social anxiety and insecurity yeah. because yeah. people who gossip, it's an easy, it's an easy access to fake intimacy. I know. And it also makes you powerful because you hold information in a room of people who want to hear it. So I, I am very, I'm fascinated by it. It is, it is a currency and it's I a think that nasty be your one. next book. And it makes you feel terrible. The politics of tittle tattle. Looking yeah. at my shelves, nothing about gossip there. There you yeah. go. The last bit of news to catch my eye were the calls for maternity clothing to be modelled by pregnant women rather than regular models sporting a prosthetic bump. A pregnant model named Sylvia Float told the Sunday Times that 
Brands prefer to use non-pregnant models as they are slimmer everywhere else in the body, whereas with pregnant women, as I know personally, your entire body changes. Pregnancy is not a disease, she said, adding that using non-pregnant models takes work away from pregnant models who are left too scared to start a family. She says that a disclaimer should be issued on websites that reveals whether or not the model modelling the maternity clothes is actually pregnant. It makes it so much harder for a pregnant woman to tell how a garment will actually fit them, she Mm. says. In response, ASOS said that they use non-pregnant models on welfare grounds as they did not want pregnant models on their feet all day. I think that's just a case of allowing pregnant women the agency to decide if they want that job, and if so, allowing them regular breaks. It's not rocket science. I think it's really important, actually. It's such a disorientating, vulnerable time when you're pregnant and to then be sold clothes that aren't actually for your body just amplifies that. Yeah, I totally agree. What's in the mailbag this week, Dolly Day? Wow, what a name. Oh, I like that. (laughs) We had more responses to our mention of fertility last week and our need to give this conversation more airtime in public discourse. One listener emailed to say, on the topic of infertility, I'd like to recommend an amazing podcast, BFN, Big Fat Negative. It's hosted by the honest, relatable and hilariously funny Emma and Gabby. On my first listen, my shoulders dropped. I breathed out. It was bloody brilliant. Trying to conceive unsuccessfully can make you feel alone, confused and as though your body is failing you. The monthly cycles of hope followed abruptly by despair are emotionally and physically draining. Emma and Gabby warmly welcome you into the incredibly supportive TTC Trying to Conceive community. Other podcasts I've learned about through BFN are the Fertility Podcast with Natalie Silverman and the TTC Life Raft with Alice Rose. I now feel a part of something new and amazing. Yes, it's shit, and I'm, of course, sad, but I have learned so much about the human body, about my health, about emotion and compassion, and that I'm so much stronger than I thought. Also, while we're on this subject, I should have mentioned this last week, Emily Phillips wrote a brilliant novel it was her first novel last year called trying which is also about uh, this exact subject because it feels like every time we mention this on the podcast we get so many people writing in so it feels like people really are desperate for more you know conversations and and brilliant um and encouraging and honest resources and communities and stories so we'll keep flagging them as we find them thank you for those recommendations a listener also wrote in response to last week's mention of cults and why they shouldn't be conflated with communes having spent a bit of time in various communes myself i'm eager to make sure that people aren't so quick to shun the idea of community living and make assumption about what it might entail communes aren't automatically cults there are hundreds re-emerging around the world today as collective projects experimenting with sustainable living, self-sufficiency, self-governance and cooperative land management. All things that we neoliberal, environmentally destructive individuals could do with learning from. Communes and experimental communities in the 21st century offer a window into a way of life that challenges loneliness, ecological crises and excessive capitalist consumption. And I think it's so important that we start to radically rethink the way we live and are not so quick to denigrate commune members as hippies or brainwashed living in unrealistic utopias. 
that's a really interesting contribution to that conversation. Fascinating. I think you raise a really good point about mm. collective living. There's definitely a drive from social theorists and cultural historians right now that I'm reading and hearing a lot about for us to foster a life of interdependence. And that doesn't mean tribalism, which David Brooks distinguishes from community as being based on mutual hate rather than mutual love, but a way of finding meaning in the collective. And it's something I'm thinking about in kind of quite micro movements, whether that's through church community volunteering or mentorship it's something I'm actively trying to achieve in my own life right now what have you been enjoying this week panda bear a piece by Ruby Tando on Nigel Slater for Vice it's such a beautiful piece of writing have you read it I haven't but when I interviewed her on love stories she chose Nigel Slater as one of her love stories (laughs) you would love it I know that you love food writing um but Regardless of whether or not you love food writing, actually, Ruby writes with such humanity and soul. So that is a great piece doing rounds on the internet at the moment. Oh, I'll read that. She is also, as well, I think, a beautiful, beautiful writer. Totally. Totally. Astonishingly and I, talented. I actually writing. tweeted saying, you know, I don't read a lot of um, food writing. I'm not terribly interested in kind of food as a genre yeah. I love snacks don't get me wrong <laughs> but I don't I don't go into the I don't read and engage much with like the culture of food yeah and she's probably one of the only food writers that really strikes me because I think I tweeted you know she writes about like life and humans mm. and she makes it so human yeah that's exactly it yeah no as you say she's really a really beautiful writer a couple of books I've been enjoying this week the book you wish your parents had read by Philippa Perry it's a really interesting look at how to understand your child better it describes itself as a parenting book for people who don't read parenting books which I think is actually a really true sell and Mama's Boy by Dustin Lance Black the filmmaker who made Milk and Tom Daly's husband about growing up in a southern Mormon family and his absolute terror that he would lose his beloved mother a tiny woman crippled by polio who had married three times out of economic desperation if he came out it's a beautiful what an unusual story yeah it's a beautiful original book mm. i really recommend that i was absolutely fascinated by a podcast episode by ezra klein I've just discovered his podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. I think it's hugely popular in the States. He's the co-founder of Vox, which is a um, popular website. And he also used to be a correspondent for The Washington Post. Anyway, I've been recommending this podcast to absolutely everyone on workism. Workism is a cultural concept coined by Derek Thompson for The Atlantic. And it's the idea that the meaning of life can be found in our work. It's become a cornerstone and a key part of our identity. Ezra Klein is joined by Derek Thompson and his other guest, Anne Helen Peterson, who wrote a piece for BuzzFeed on millennial burnout, which I referred to in a piece I wrote about my own mistaken efforts to have it all for the Sunday Times style. Her piece went like massively viral earlier this year. And the central thesis to this podcast is basically that work is no longer how you make money. It has become your identity. Mm. And whilst there are boundaries on a job, there are not boundaries on an identity. Mm. And therefore, everything becomes the same thing. These are thoughts that I had been thinking a lot about recently, um, behaviour that I'd really recognised in myself, but no one had put it quite so eloquently and with all this kind of cultural... The idea that it's a cultural movement as this podcast. Everything becomes work, they say. Admin, the work itself, socialising. It all gets flattened into an endless to-do list. And I could not be more afflicted by that if I tried. Not only mm. is work uh, too big a part of my identity, but everything is flattened into the same thing. Of those three tenets, 
I do not find one more relaxing mm. than the other. Furthermore, Anne Helen Peterson says, by turning everything in a, into a to-do list, we subscribe to the idea that everything can be optimised. We're all about the best experience, the fastest experience, whether that's taking your shoes to the cobbler, ordering food or doing your work. And this leads to the idea that we have to be efficient at all times, whatever we're doing. And it goes far beyond the work itself. She says it's a feminist issue because of the mental load that extends workism for women. Most women are physically running their entire households in their head. It's just what contemporary motherhood now looks like, she says. Furthermore, we're encouraged to develop side hustles. And this goes up and down the class register, she says. I love the way Anne Helen Peterson is constantly looking at how something um, is parlayed across the class register. Mm. She doesn't just look at what's happening in middle class uh, women. She says it happens in everyone except the super rich. Derek Thompson, meanwhile, is just as interesting and well-researched, coming from very different angles. He says that work and leisure have become leaky. Um, And it reminds me of something that I was discussing with the vice president of Twitter, a really interesting man called Bruce Daisley, um, about how public and private have become blurred. And it's all to do with technology. Um, Anne Helen Peterson, Ezra Klein and Derek Thompson discuss the idea of LARPing, that work must now be seen, which is problematic as so much of our work is invisible. Mm. So how do we escape? it. Anne Helen Peterson says that this is not a new issue. Precarity and shittiness and omnipresence of work might be a new middle class symptom but it is not a new working class one. Derek Thompson says that it can either come from public policy so top down or cultivating the garden of your own mind bottom up by acknowledging that it's impossible to separate yourself from a status seeking world and it's impossible to remove all insecurity shorter work weeks he says won't help change that fact Mm. it has to be down Mm. to your intrinsic sense of self totally agree with that all in all it was one of the most fascinating ranging podcasts i've ever listened i can't stop thinking about it does that trigger some thoughts in you yeah totally and it's something I'm wading through every day at the moment so I could do with some guidance and some explanation it took me about four hours to listen to this podcast because I made such extensive yeah. notes yeah um it was one of those podcasts where I had to be sitting doing nothing literally looking at a blank wall so I didn't miss a word I couldn't believe how eloquent it was I couldn't I, I just yeah I I'm fascinated by um human behavior and cultural movements and it genuinely felt like th- this was like a leitmotif of our age so yeah can't recommend that enough and in fact the whole show he's incredibly interesting on both social and economic politics and another um piece of content i was hugely affected by was louis theroux's new documentary which aired on sunday night about postnatal depression i was thrilled when i saw that he was making a documentary on this i think any woman who's had a baby either in the last few years or perhaps at all, will watch that documentary with her heart in her mouth because it really emphasises the fragility of the postpartum self. There's a bit where a woman goes missing and I found that so hard to watch. She is found. Um, That's not a spoiler. I think it's quite important if we're discussing a documentary to say that. There's a woman who's been discharged and is at home with her children, but she's still struggling so much. And I think they thought it was really important to include that in the documentary to show how um, long the recovery process Mm. can take. Uh, She can hardly keep her eyes open and it's an effort to even talk. It's, you know, devastating to see her struggle continue. There's a moment where, and I think this is a real klaxon actually, there's a moment where a woman talks about how she didn't have the birth that she wanted 
And I think that's a really modern symptom now that there's this idea of birth plans mm. and that you can plan your birth and really you can't. Yeah. It's beyond control. And, and Adam Kay says that in his book. I think that's yeah. quite a damaging modern modern dialogue, actually, that uh, a birth plan. I deliberately uh, didn't have a birth plan except that I wanted the most natural birth I could have. And if that wasn't the case, then all I wanted was to have a safe birth. And actually I had every form of intervention under the sun Mm. but I don't call my birth a traumatic birth because it wasn't something that traumatised me because I was prepared for the fact that I probably wouldn't get the birth I wanted to be honest I was probably only prepared for that because my sister's a midwife yeah so I had this access there's privileged information yeah Yeah. even though it shouldn't be yeah access that other people didn't have um there have been some queries over whether Louis was the right person to do this documentary rather than say a woman or a mother because it did feel at times like he didn't really understand what these women were feeling he insinuated at one point that um postnatal psychosis can come on in an instant which to me felt like perhaps a misunderstanding um and something that's got increasing dialogue around the idea of depression anxiety uh being in pre-partum women basically in pregnant pregnant women um and that's a discussion that's happening more and more certainly that that's something that i have personal experience of but i actually think that's the point of louis through he's totally removed most of the time from his material but he's empathetic and it's also the default position of a lot of viewers i think for um a lot of viewers who haven't had a haven't given birth or just haven't ever struggled with mental health this idea of you know having a much longed for child and still feeling those feelings could be completely alien they might struggle to get into that state state of mind so yeah. louis kind of occupying and and navigating people through that terrain is quite powerful in that sense you get an adorable insight into him as a father he's obsessed with poo sorry Dolly. oh god my one critique would be that i would have liked to have seen a little more nuance of postnatal depression and psychosis for example it's well reported that postnatal depression hits black women the hardest and asian women the least so i'd have quite liked to have seen some conversation around that a little more diversity of interviewees um and perhaps a bit more of the culture of this um whether or not it's got worse or perhaps it hasn't I don't know in recent years if it has why do birth plans and the desire to have that perfect birth plan lead to it um but all in all it was a moving and empathetic start to a conversation that I think has only recently woefully woefully undocumented yeah only recently been opened up so yeah, totally recommend that. Doll, what have you been enjoying this week? I enjoyed some Louis Theroux content because Desert Island Discs has returned and he was episode one. Has he done one before? No, no. I was quite frustrated listening to it because there were moments of total lucidity and self-awareness and honesty and tenderness and a real insight into the heart of the man. But, you know, he does this for a prof- professionally so keeps your arms length totally keeps yeah your arms i length. thought he would and actually i went back recently and i was I can't remember why i was reading some old interviews with louis theroux and the the one that i read was a guardian journalist forgive me i can't remember who it was but one that i read was this woman said every person i speak to who's close to him says no one really can get to the heart of who he is and i i don't know and he does like touch on that about his kind of um fears of vulnerability and intimacy uh, i just wanted to push a bit further but the small those small moments I think that he the gives the enigmaticness though is part of his i totally get why he does it i totally get it charisma 
beyond that i think it's totally part of his craft i think it's you know to to stand journalistically where he stands one foot in one foot out where Mm. he can become incredibly um immersed in the everyday domesticity of his subjects and have a easy rapport with them while being entirely removed and observant on the side that is tough to do Mm. and there's a reason why he's so famous for it no one does it as artfully as he does so I also get that it's you know probably as he said self-protecting for his career but there were some like nice moments he talked about Adam Buxton and Joe Cornish and uh, being at school together uh, which I loved hearing about he there's this amazing moment where he chooses this is shanty song do you remember the song it was like when we were doing our GCSEs yeah I remember what's love got to do with it yeah he played that for his wife because he said that the first time he realized he had fallen in love with her was on their fourth date they went to like clubbing which i just thought was quite rogue (laughs) maybe i just can't imagine louis through clubbing and he said that this song came on and she was the best dancer that he'd ever seen and at that moment the way that she was moving he'd never seen someone move like that before so that you get like love that and i love hearing about those kind of incredibly detailed fragments of memory. Uh, that's why Desert Island Discs is so wonderful. For me, there was a little bit too much on oh, his accountability with Jimmy Savile. It was like a big segment. He just had to like endlessly defend himself again. And, you know, the man went and revisited the original programme, did a follow-up, and completely examined in an incredibly granular way all the ways in which he missed the signs that there was something very disturbing about Jimmy Savile but I don't know I I don't know how much every time I hear him talk about it I wonder if there was stuff that went on internally that we're not aware of in fact I know that there is because in the interview he refers to people within the BBC pointing fingers and pointing and blame so but I but you know Louis Theroux is a journalist he is not a judge or a barrister Mm. Mm. the the responsibility did not fall on Louis Theroux when the entire nation had been fooled. The responsibility did not fall on him, I think, when he was filming an episode of Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends to unearth the, you know, the criminality of this of this awful man. So, Thank yeah, you. there was a little bit too much of that for me, but I loved hearing about his childhood and his incredibly intellectual and worldly and sounds kind of quite bohemian parents and his transatlantic upbringing he's just a fascinating man so i did really enjoy that i'm gonna mention him again bloody joe rogan yeah i'm gonna have to put a monthly limit on jr (laughs) well here he is again uh i did love that one you recommended though actually i was riveted with russell brand yeah yeah the eddie Izzard one i listened to last week and um it's great. It's really good. Uh, he, it's a really interesting combination, the two men, um, particularly because Joe Rogan is obviously... He's a man who is very interested in physical disciplines. And obviously, Eddie Izzard is a man who ran... I can't even remember like how many marathons. 24 marathons in 25 days. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and also, Eddie Izzard constantly presents himself with these extraordinary challenges whether they're physical or whether Mm. it's that he is going to learn an entire language before one of his uh foreign tours so that i I just find that there's some real similarities with yeah and i find that level because it's so different to my personality type i do that for myself with work but i don't do it so much personally people who choose things that they know are going to be incredibly difficult for them to achieve Mm. and decide to 
put themselves through it and document the activity and enjoy the activity and learn from it, I find fascinating. So that's a, a very interesting conversation. I also loved... Do you watch the Durrells? No, I never have. I think you'd really like it. I've talked about it before on the high-low. It's a lovely, lovely, quite gentle, but very funny and beautiful programme, like Sunday night viewing. McKeely Hawes, based on the books of Gerald Durrell, who wrote My Family and Other Animals. The Times ran an interview with one of the actors of the Durrells, who is a Greek man called Alexis Georgoulis, and he plays this kind of very hunky on-off love interests of um, Keely Hawes. And I just wanted to read a bit from it because I just can't remember the last time I read a, a, a profile like this. So he's very much this, like, sexy Greek actor. If you don't watch the Durrells in the UK, you wouldn't know who he is. But if you watch the Durrells, he's, like, the housewife's choice. You know, he's, like, a proper heartthrob. He's the sort of man, like, when I watch the Durrells with my mum, she completely melts into a pool of nothing. So the headline is, It's Spiro from the Durrells, and he's single. And Hilary Rose is the journalist who interviews him. And it begins... It's been clear to me for many years that my destiny lies with George Clooney. It is equally clear that this prospect is not so imminent. So dispatched to interview the George Clooney of Greece, I was keen to make a good first impression. Calimera, I muttered as I walked down a pretty Athens street to meet him. How hard can this be? It's just the Greek for hello. Calimera. Then Alex Georgiulis walked in, all six foot one of him, with tousled hair as if he'd just got out of bed, a motorbike helmet under his arm and a dazzling smile. Goodness. Hello, I said weakly. Calimari. <laughs> And then she's, it's a really, really funny conversation. And she's actually had people in the comments pick her up on this. But his, he, I think he's amused by his kind of broken English as well. At one point, they're talking about his love life. And he says, I can't keep a personal life for a long time. He says, looking sad, this is my drama. Right now, I don't have a girlfriend. I've been single for three months. I'm like free bread. Free bread? He frowns. I meant free as a bird. Ha, ah, free bird. Bread for free. <laughs> it's just so funny. And then I loved the comments because it's, it's so clear how much of a cult following this man is and what a cult sex symbol he is. Underneath, this is so in keep on brand with the times. Dorothy Daxand wrote, he can have a fiddle with my fuse box anytime he likes. <laughs> <laughs> and then Gillian Ross wrote, delicious man. So it's just a very fun interview with a very hunky Greek man <laughs> and finally I would like to recommend Phoebe Waller-Bridge on the Hollywood Reporter Awards Chatter podcast I think she's promoting uh, something in the US at the moment because she's doing the rounds on podcasts I've got her fresh air episode stored up I think it's because Killing Eve's out there yeah must it, be that it's not out in the UK yet but it's out um, it's out in the US cool great because she's so busy she doesn't do many interviews so I'm glad you found one thanks for flagging yeah she's and she's such good interviewee she's incredibly uh, fluent and articulate with her thoughts while also being incredibly funny uh, so this episode is brilliant she talks about uh, I'll tell you why you'll love it Panda and it's something that I've listened to it again because it's something I'm really struggling with at the moment she talks a lot about how jug juggling different projects and how you absorb the world and decide to compartmentalise how you put that into your content. So she said that when she was making Fleabag, she was also making Crashing. So she had to have basically two boxes in her head. What's, the, what's for the character of Lulu? What's for that project? And what's for the character of Fleabag? What's for that project? And every writer or creator I know, I think, is constantly 
negotiating that thought process. And it was just really reassuring to have someone talk about it and how the struggles of that, but also offer some solutions of how to have a number of different creative projects on the go. So I really enjoyed her talking about that. She talked about the, the development of Fleabag, um, the difference between being a kind of auteur, as she was on Fleabag, and being more of a traditional uh TV writer as she was on Crashing. But the bit that I liked most in the interview, which I'd like to insert a clip of now, is when she talks about her feminism and how she chooses to explore it and express it, because it's something I very much identified with. My best expression of how I feel about it and my own analysis of, of it was always in the show. Because yeah. <laughs> she's, Fleabag's confused. She doesn't want to get it wrong. Like, I don't want to get it wrong. You know, I care so much about how that aspect of Fleabag landed because it was that there are, again, it's a similar thing to like the drama school thing, but like there are rules that I don't know. I can't see what the rules are, but you apparently you can fuck this up. <laughs> and um, it's terrifying because it's something you care so much about and uh, you don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And a lot of the time I think we had, well, I certainly did. I had these secret thoughts about like having shame about my body or things that felt like if I actually expressed would, wouldn't be helping the cause in, in some way when actually I think it's the absolute opposite I think mm-hmm. the more that we talk about it and the more that men are interested in it as well because women talk to each other about it all the time mm-hmm. so we're shouting into our own and each other's vaginas about it the whole time <laughs> and you just want um and it's when it's now it was great because men are, are listening and, and are interested and in a public way as well that reminds me of her podcast episode with elizabeth day on how to fail where she's talking about and i I actually laughed out loud listening to this how she'd hooked up with a guy and you know there'd been a flirtation but neither of them were expecting anything to come of it and she was singing to herself unthinkingly at last <laughs> by um etta james. by etta james and the man just looked terrified she's like no 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 my lonely um but interesting on that compartmentalizing thing there's an interview on the cut this week one of new york magazine's websites that has generated quite a lot of um piss taking i suppose it's with audrey gelman who oh, is yeah, yeah. The, uh, one of the co-founders of the wing the female only workspace yeah and in it she says that she um her assistant is in her inbox all day and she colour codes her emails with 60 different colours. So her filing system has um, 60 different uh, genres, boxes, compartmentalisations. Do good for her if it works for her? Well, I am much more consoled by Phoebe's suggestion of uh, two boxes of the brain than 60 (laughs) colour-coded ones because that that makes me want to have a panic attack just as much as my own brain or inbox does most of the time. Pillow talk Pillow talk Another night I hear myself talk Talk, talk, talk Wonder how It would be To have someone to pillow talk with me I wonder Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our guest this week is the journalist, campaigner, and best-selling author, Bryony Gordon. Bryony has been one of The Telegraph's star writers for nearly 20 years, writing interviews, features, and columns. It was the columns of her high-octane 20s that inspired her first memoir, The Wrong Knickers, a hilarious and ruthlessly honest retrospective look at her decade of chaos. Her second memoir, Mad Girl, took a more serious tone and documented her struggles with mental health over her lifetime, from childhood to adulthood, spanning issues such as eating disorders, drug addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. Her third book, Eat, Drink, Run, was about how she trained for and ran a marathon alongside becoming a public spokesperson for mental health, which involved her interviewing Prince Harry. A watershed moment which saw her interviewed on every single news station under the sun in the aftermath and co-founding the peer support group Mental Health Mates. Her latest book, You Got This, A Fabulously Fearless Guide to Being You, is a manual aimed at teenagers in which she shares 10 crucial life lessons she wished she had known at that age. In Bryony's signature voice, it is funny, warm, reassuring and honest. Bryony, thank you so much for joining us on the High Low. Where did you get your idea for You Got This? Oh God, well thank you for having me. Thanks for having me ladies. Pleasure. Okay, so, the, so You Got This came out of a place of... Um... Actually, like most of my books come out of a place of misery, but I try to take that misery and like switch it into something positive. So like last summer, I was really, really low. Actually, I remember having quite a lot of conversations with you, Dolly, about about how low I was. You were a great balm for my soul. So thank you. But I remember being, I think I was about to get like a year's sobriety and I realised I'd learned all of this stuff um, since I'd come out about my own mental health and then since getting sober and it was like someone had pulled the rug out from under me mm. and I was like oh my god look at all the stains put the rug back put the rug back <laughs> I just want it to go away but I realized I couldn't unsee the stains I was gonna have to scrub at them and <laughs> like really hard and with bleach and so you got this was like I, as I was doing all my scrubbing I was kind of thinking what, what what's everything I've learned that I wish someone had told me at 12 that I'm only now finding out at 38 um so it sort of came to me so it was it was a bit like it is a it's a book for teenage girls but really it's a book for the teenage girl that I was mm. who was like horribly insecure always wanted to like slither out of her own skin and into someone else's like like we're most uh, were we were you you guys were like that as teenagers oh totally yeah yeah and it was such a reminder actually reading the book of of how of just how difficult I found that period the horror, but also because it's such a crucial period, isn't it? Because you think, well, let's talk about periods, right? Like all of that stuff, you're changing. And, you know, your hormones are coming into play and you're sort of just told to dismiss them. You know, like, I remember the amount of times people go, oh, she's just hormonal. Like they still do. She's just hormonal. And I, be- and I was like writing this book, I was thinking, how dare you tell me I'm just hormonal? Like hormones are the most... Um, powerful chemicals known to humankind and you're telling me to dismiss them because they happen to be female yeah you know we don't talk about periods when we get them we're not supposed to talk about them when we stop getting them and I realized that puberty had brought with it this huge amount of shame attached to my body you know and and I realized that had actually I lived in a more like I think now about 
I think it's a wonderful time to be a young woman. You know, there's so much more diversity. You see so many different types of body shapes and people are talking about their experiences. And I think it's so important that you don't sort of get eaten up by that shame at that young age because it's at your very core and then you carry it through into everything. I totally agree. Mm. I totally agree that that develops at adolescence and then unpicking that much later on in womanhood is a really difficult job. I want to say that the book is um, just a testament really to realising that you were enough and that teenage girls, you are really imploring them to realise that they are enough, um, perhaps earlier than you did. As you mm. say, it got to 37, did you say, when you wrote it? Yeah. To be scrubbing at the stains and to realise you <laughs> wanted to do something with what you'd learned. Well, also, like, I feel I feel like I that question, what do you, be when you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, I had so many answers to that. And at the heart of all of them was that I wanted to be a little bit less like me. And no one ever taught me that when I grew up, the most powerful thing I could be was myself. And, you know, I'm seeing it so much more. So I remember when Cosmopolitan put Tess Holiday on the cover, um, Tess being a plus size model, totally beautiful. And do you remember there was this whole kind of yeah. like storm, people like Piers Morgan on Twitter saying, um, you know, that she's this is this is just as bad promoting obesity is as bad as promoting skinny models. And I remember getting into this argument. I don't know why I did it, but this woman said to me, I would be as horrified if my daughter wanted to look like, say, Gigi Hadid, as if she wanted to look like Tess Holiday. And I was like, the whole point of having diversity and inclusivity and putting people like Tess Holiday on the cover of magazines so that your daughter doesn't want to look like anyone. Yeah, that's yeah. just what I was thinking when you the said default, that. The default position is that we must all want to kind of improve ourselves and make ourselves look different and that we are not enough, you know? And it's it's everywhere. It's in, you know, it's, it's if we buy this thing or that magazine, if we buy... You know, if we have those genes, if we could just be a £10 slimmer, our lives would be better. And it's like, actually, no, I'm okay. Yeah. I think I would have found this book... I mean, I found it valuable reading it now, but how valuable I'd have found it as a teenager. And it reminded me of a book I got in the late 90s from Barnes & Noble when I went to Colorado. And I got my mum to send it, send it up as this... I hold on to this. Look, it's still got my school number. Oh, my God. It, what it's, was your school number? 534. It's um Did you go to some sort of robot school? <laughs> I went to a Catholic boarding school. <laughs> but it's the most... It was the most formative book I read in my teenage years. And I... I I think you'd really enjoy it, which is why I got her to, to unearth it. It's called Deal With It. Yeah, do it. And there's all these all these sections on lots of things that um that, that you well mentioned. Thumbed, that, so well thumbed. I lent it to all my friends. We learned so much from that book. I, it was just, not something I've just opened it on a page. Can I just read this to you? Yeah. Multiple partners. Three-way sex is called a threesome or a menage a trois. An orgy or group sex pre- refers to sex with more than three participants. Like this? Wow! Yeah, I read that age 12. My partners so... were not letting me put that in. <laughs> but these were not conversations. I didn't have the internet. They weren't conversations I'd have had with my, um, you know, with my parents. Especially at boarding school, you're you're kind of slightly more isolated in that you only have your peers, really, yeah. to learn stuff from. And that book completely saved us. And reading your book transported me back to my deal with it days um, at least you get fact there at least you get because otherwise as you said if you're not hearing that from 
your parents. You either learn it from lies from pornography or lies mm. from your other well, teenage Jenny Cooper friends. Jenny was also no pretty formative for me. Oh yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I didn't know most of the words when I started reading it. <laughs> I was that. I was that innocent. Writing about your own feelings as a teenager, you write, "Me, myself, and I were not good enough. We were worse than not good enough. We were broken and in desperate need of fixing." Brani, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing teenage girls now? For me, the things that bother me most are things like filters. And I know it does. I know it seems silly, doesn't it? Me going filters on Instagram are the biggest challenges facing teenage girls nowadays. Because obviously, there's a huge amount. But what does concern me is that sort of sense that you have to make yourself look like some sort of Japanese manga cartoon yeah, version yeah. of yourself. You know, you see people that just—I saw an advert on Instagram the other day for this face mask. And there was like this testimonial from this woman who said, before I used this face mask, I had pores and afterwards I didn't. And I was like, babes, you had had pores. If you didn't have pores, you'd be dead. Yeah. But like you see people filter out everything. And I worry about how that, when you add that in to, it's bad enough whatever age you are, but when you add that into puberty, I, I worry about the effect that might have now look I when I was a teenager I didn't have social media I didn't have a mobile phone that makes me sound so old I don't know why I just did that like elderly posh voice um (laughs) but I think that at the heart you know it doesn't really matter I think nowadays we worry about the young and we think but we feel kind of very disconnected from them but I think all of the kind of the major themes are the same they're just Mm. kind of existing in a different slightly different medium right yeah. Yeah, I always think it's I find that kind of argument where we treat each generation like totally separate quite tedious. You yeah, know, like I when agree. we talk about millennials and like snowflake. Oh my god, so like that's just a form of like that's what just what we call anxiety now. Yeah. But baby boomers called it also, something else. It just I find that quite boring. Well, it is they, the same I don't think things. baby boomers really spoke about it. And and I just done a whole, it, a yeah. whole chapter about snowflakes and how you're not a snowflake. Yeah. And yeah. How, you know, the, the term snowflake really annoys me, especially yeah, I love that you're like, Are you spiky? Do you melt when the temperature falls goes above you know zero? Like the whole thing is that you know snowflakes is just sort of an insult used to undermine people for expressing their feelings, you know, or used fe- by the army to recruit. <laughs> well, now, yeah, but feelings that none of us ever express. Those sort of very right wing older men, yeah, you know, talking about how emoting. I mean, it was the same when I did the interview with Prince Harry, and you got this as you will with anything royal, you get a sort of backlash and there were people saying, oh, you know, I don't want our royals to have a moat. They're they're supposed to have stiff upper lips. And I'm like, well, maybe when the biggest killer of young men in this country was the Nazis, but now it's suicide, you know? And so they need to do that. And um, I think that it's, it's, it's really important that we don't silence people. Um, and if I, and I've always said about the quote unquote snowflake generation that if the worst thing you can say about a generation is that they care about people, then I think we're in pretty good hands. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I totally agree. And as you mentioned, the world that you grew up in as a teenager and the world that teenagers are growing up in now is different. How did you go about kind of getting into the mindset of a teenage girl now? Did you talk to any teenage girls? I was really worried about becoming like that really cringy old, older person who's Just taking to be notes down while people kids. are talking. <laughs> and I guess it was like any book. I sat down and was like, "What? What did? I, what would I have liked to have heard 
when I was 12. Like when I sat down and write, write the wrong knickers and mad girl and all of it was like, what do I wish someone had told me before I had all these experiences? You know, like I basically want to kind of give everyone a big warm hug. That's what I want my books to feel like in a way like reassurance because I always felt so alone and I was like surely I can't be the only one that feels like this there must be other people who think they're fuckwits too and in a way all of my books were like oh I just want to kind of find those people but I also want to give them a bit of comfort to know it's okay you know and so I guess with this one it was exactly the same it's like what would I have wanted to have heard when I was 12 but also it's really for me it was like what do I need to hear now <laughs> at the yeah. age of 38? Yeah. Like every morning when I wake up. It's kind of, what's that awful phrase people use of like reparenting yourself? Yeah, yeah. Were you thinking as well, is your daughter six? Yes. Were you thinking, okay, so in six years time, this is the book I would like to give her? Um, or five years time? I don't know when you plan to, or next year? Yeah, <laughs> she's already read it. No, um, <laughs> obviously I, yeah, I don't want, like everything I do is kind of done with a, not wanting her to grow up with the same kind of experiences that I had of shame and hiding things inside her. Um, and, I mean, it's dedicated to her. She thinks it's oh. her book. <laughs> she, in fact, the other day, our um, a friend, a mum came round, one of her school friends' mums, and said, oh, can I, can I have a book? And I went and got her one. And she said, will you sign it? And Edie grabbed it out of my hand and was like, yeah, I will. I'm like, ah! <laughs> I'm hoping by the time that she's like 12, 13, that none of these problems will exist anymore. That's like burying my head in the sand, isn't it? Yeah, did it make you, did it give you pause for thought when you were writing this about the next phase of parenting and having a teenage girl imminently in your house? (laughs) It sort of made me think about my poor mum, actually. Made me look back and think, oh my God, what did she go through with this quite mentally ill child who... Uh, was quite insular and um she started to read it the other day and we we went we were going we were going to like the fish and chip shop um for our like saturday night takeaway in front of prince got talent and she was staying that night and she said um i've just got to the chapter about (laughs) self-pleasure and she was like i realized i didn't like talk to you about that at all i didn't really know what it was and i was like this is not the time or the place that ship has sailed mum now can we not have that conversation about wanking um i think that's lovely though that she kind of went you know went there conversationally with you to say sorry that i missed that bit out yeah I mean, I, I also love the idea of your mum saying to you, self-pleasure in a fish and chip shop. It's so hard. Solo I, love. I think it's... <laughs> solo love, my God. I think it's hard. Like, I, I thought about this a lot after I interviewed Sarah Pascoe mm. because she had a difficult relationship with masturbation and she said it's because that her mum was too open with her about right. it. So her mum said, you know, it's this wonderful thing and it's like no shame attached to it and it's, it's like self-discovery. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And she said that then it got to a point where like whenever she would come to do it, she'd be like, mum would be proud and then that became too... <laughs> That's a bit of a passion killer, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. I, think I think that, that is it, hard. I, I, th- I think that just comes back to the, you know, your parent not being your best friend. Mm-hmm. That idea of having some distance, so educating children about drink and drugs and anything that feels not fake. doing it with them. Yeah, faintly <laughs> chance. Yeah, no, I don't think you need to masturbate with your mum. Let's just put that out there. Definitely you, going on the yes. cutting room floor. In the, in the chapter a masturbation marathon, you write, "If only I could tell that to the eleven-year-old." 
me about to embark on her orgasmathon. Dude, do not be ashamed of something perfectly normal. You might not want to discuss pleasuring yourself with your mates. I get that. But don't feel bad while you're actually going about the act. And it struck me when reading that, aside from my beloved, deal with it. And bits of Catelyn Moran, although of course mm. her writing's not YA. I don't think I've seen teenage female masturbation covered so extensively and empathetically. Was it really important for you? And do you think it should be part of the scholastic sex education? Yes. Everyone masturbates. I mean, I, I may be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure everyone all masturbates, right? And, and you see it without going into detail. You know, humans at a certain age discover their genitals. Yeah. And yeah. You know, that's how, that's really why we exist as, you know, that's why we're so successful as a species, right? So I... I think it is really important. And again, because I, you know, again, that's the shame I had as a woman for having sexual urges. Like I'm covering my face as I say this and closing my eyes as if, as, you know, like still all this yeah. time later, it has that effect on me. I was so ashamed of my sexual urges and until really recently. And I thought no one, like I, I, I wanked all the time as a young person and Less so now, Sally. I don't have as as much time to do it. Um, but it was. It's You're a really... freelance journalist, Brian. <laughs> that's all. That's all we do. I know. We just, do it. just call yourself a freelancer. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a really important thing because when we explore our bodies, we find out what we do like, and more importantly, we find out what we don't like. So later on, when we start to explore other bodies. If there's something that we don't like, we can say it. Yeah. We can vocalise yeah. it. You know, yeah, for me, it's actually about consent. Yeah. You know, so if someone tries to do something you don't want, you can say, yeah. not now, not ever. And if you are not going to respect me from that, I'm going to, like, call the police on your ass. You know, it's there's so many things tied up in it. Mm. A chapter of the book that I adored is titled You Are a Miracle, in which you talk about the boundlessness of adventure and the, the mind-blowing biology of the human body, which I loved. How important do you think it is to change the conversations around bodies, particularly with teenagers, and take the, the focus off bodies just being an aesthetic tool? Mm. I think, um, for me, that's been a big driver. I, I ran the marathon last year in my underwear, and I remember... Um, uh, uh, someone, we got a bit of criticism from people saying there's nothing liberating about women taking their clothes off, you know, about you're, you're sexualizing yourself. And I was like, no, 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 that's the point. Mm. Like, we were in big kind of granny knickers, bras, and that. what we wanted to do was um, show bodies as they are. Like, I don't see... I don't see the kind of textures of bodies anymore now because of filtering and photoshopping yourself. And I wanted to take it back and say, my body has done incredible things. I've given birth with it. I've got through addiction issues with it. I've just, I'm just staying right now. Our bodies are doing amazing things. Like we're breathing without realizing it. Our heart is pumping blood all around. You know, there's, there's umpteen amazing things that are going on. And why am I, why do I have this obligation to find bits of my body that I, hate and that and worry about what you know what what members of the opposite sex think of it and whether they find it attractive like I don't I don't give a shit anymore I'm really done with that and I remember doing it and people being like you know that 
getting emails from men or comments from men going, oh, I wouldn't do you, as if that might be the worst possible thing yeah. to hear. Like, yeah. oh, no, you don't want to have sex with me. I was really hoping that you yeah. would. I don't have masses. Like, people often, I post quite a lot of pictures on Instagram of myself in, like, underwear with my, like, folds and, you know, and, and cellulite on display. And I get a lot of messages from women saying, I wish I had your confidence. And the thing I always say is that I don't, I don't necessarily have confidence. Like I, I have the same thoughts as everyone else does. You know, I'm a, I'm a recovering bulimic. You know, and um, but what I do have is a desire not to waste any more energy hating on myself and trash talking myself. An element of acceptance and contentment, contentment in what your body is to you. Yeah. And you say when talking about your role as a, a you know, in body positivity that yeah. part of it has been that you're asked to speak at events because it's kind of considered quite radical mm. that you might be okay with your body. Yeah, it's so, quite offensive in a kind of yeah. roundabout way. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that that's considered quite quite radical and um you I really enjoyed how you wrote about quite sometimes in the body positivity community it with that thing has happened again where things escalate mm. and it almost becomes like you it's quite exclusive you know you have to have a certain body type to be part of the body positivity mm. movement and then that becomes quite tribal as well and it, it doesn't really involve everyone in the conversation and what I loved is you didn't do that thing of saying that you know slim women aren't real women but what you did say is that's not normal wanting to look like Gigi Hadid is like wanting to run like Usain Bolt like and it yeah. gave it <laughs> but it gave it that real that real balance it, 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 it wasn't you know don't want to look like don't look like these models because those aren't real people they're ridiculous you know it it didn't give that kind of well, they are real people but they are like olympic athletes exactly yeah. exactly but there wasn't any that yeah i just like that there wasn't any division in your words so if you were reading it as you know some teenage girls are painfully thin mm. and very embarrassed about her thin they are if you were a painfully thin teenager reading that you wouldn't think oh okay well i can't be part of that club mm. there wasn't mm. that sense there was just this sense of what you've obviously learned from it sometimes sounds like you didn't even plan to be a body positivity activist. It was just sort of foisted on you and you rolled with it and done what <laughs> Literally you... Literally rolled with it. <laughs> but I don't... But I haven't planned any of this. And it's really interesting you say that because we do... We've got... Um, I love that Brani looks around the room. We've what, got... Why am I here? Yeah, well, no, but I do have moments like that. Like, I'm like, I'm on the high-low. What the fuck? I told a friend and she was like, shut up. I'm coming with you. Um, also written four books more. <laughs> but I... I okay so like we we we're doing at the end of this month we're doing um a 10k me and Jada who I ran the marathon with who um is plus size model um and we've recruited a thousand women to run with us in their underwear and we wanted to get people of all shapes and sizes so we've got people like um Deborah James who's bell babe on Instagram who has terminal bowel cancer and oh did she do the c word podcast yes the girls from the that podcast are doing it and then we've got um, Nimco Ali who has experienced FGM and campaigns to end that and we've got women with completely varied different body experiences you know fat thin whatever you know anything in between i think it's really important that we don't pitch ourselves against each other yeah yeah like that that's kind of a crucial tenet of the book as well is that comparison thing i really really felt that because sometimes i get a bit depressed because i feel like in trying to remedy the conversation we go the other way and there is a real sense in that book that this book is not like for a certain type of girl exactly. if a girl's reading it who's actually really confident and 
gets loads of the things already that you're talking about that you know we wouldn't have got as a teenager there's still there's still something she can find it's not you know you're not just saying well if you're if you're not vulnerable then this book isn't for you Mm. you could sort of join I don't know I feel like you can join in it wherever you are however you are that does seem like a big part I feel like because I feel like a lot of us well I feel like when I was growing up the comparison thing was like I was always comparing myself to my friends and and why wasn't I thinner, taller, whatever, you know, but there's, you know, my, and I know you talk about this so much in your book, Dolly, like, you know, being tall and, you know, there's, there's the, the grass is always greener yeah. on the other side, yeah. you know, but like actually the grass is greener where you water it. And that ends the comparison thing is, you know, it has this patriarchal throwback, which is that we were, if we're busy fighting each other and competing against each other then we're not using our energy to fight the real enemies totally. who are the patriarchy. Yeah. Well, Dolly sometimes puts it as this idea that like there's only so much oxygen in a room. Like the idea that if there's one woman doing something, yeah. other women can't do it. Well, I remember reading your essay in Feminists Don't Wear Pink um, and that you 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 really vocalize that like there is space for more than one woman yeah, yeah. i have to remind myself of that sometimes i though. have to remind myself if i see someone's done a piece of writing that's you know similar to what i want to do and i think god i love that i can't do that now mm. you know we all have a voice to mm. use differently and mm. i think and i do think that's a specifically female who wrote thing. someone wrote a great piece when fleabag came out um and i can't remember the name of the comedian but she had gone to the bbc and said i've i've got this show and they said well, we've we've actually we've got a show for females it's fleabag yeah. and she was like can you imagine if, <laughs> if we had more than one show so, you know and also that they're like well, we've got a show for men it's called i don't know i'm trying to think off the top of my game head. of thrones <laughs> game of thrones or not going out or whatever yeah. it is so i'm sorry that's it box ticked and it is like well hang on a second and i remember seeing it with my mum when i was younger like she was like you can do whatever you want darling you know smash that glass ceiling and yet she looked terrified of other women in you know like who were working with her yeah. because it was like men were saying oh yeah we accept there's space for there's space for women but only one yeah and you were gonna have to like fight each other or it's like spider crabs who like the young eat their parents do you know what I mean and I'm like this is bullshit does Edie look hungry well <laughs> um, she but you know it is rubbish like we 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 there is room for all of us you know don't and I as I say it's not it's not don't filter yourself but don't also don't filter yourself in real life like don't edit yourself don't try and be because you know people talk about being less than i always felt too much and it's yeah like, i understand that it's like actually there's room for there's room for the loud people there's room for the quiet people yes, there's room yes. for everyone right we all we all have really important roles and don't try and be something you're not. I mean, that's, that's not a radical thing to say. People have been saying it since the dawn of time. No, but... no, no, but it is something still. Um, whenever I'm asked like, what my motto, I'm sure you guys have a sort of motto that you trolley out if someone's like, what, you know, what do you live by? And mine is always, you know, you do you. Because mm-hmm. that your only chance of success is trying to be the best version of yourself. You, may, you, you can't be someone else. You no. physically can't do it. You can try and change everything externally, but internally you'll still be the same. So, you know, you joke that it may sound kind of very prosaic advice, but the, the thing we struggle with still more than anything is trying to inhabit ourselves, whether it's our own body or our mm. own mind or our own 
personality, whether you're a teenage girl or you're 60. Mm, hopefully when you're 60. I didn't know. I mean, I'm still learning who I am and what I like and all of those things. You know, I didn't know until I got sober. Mm. And also that changes. We've changed. What I like now, what I do now is totally different from what I did to five years ago. Yeah. And there's still a real resistance to that as well, I think. Yeah, it's all that sort of... It's, but I think I spent a lot of time trying to kind of, oh my God, like the people pleasing thing, mm-hmm. you know, what, what will people like me for? And, you know, it really has taken me a long time to go, well, what do I enjoy? Like, I've only just realized I'm a bit of an introvert. Like, I'm shy. I don't like going to parties. Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's a bit of a like mind blowing kind of moment. And, uh, but it's, it's kind of wonderful and it doesn't, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll stay at home and watch men's shows like Game of Thrones (laughs) one of my favourite segments is the opening of a chapter called You Are Miss Right um, that I was going to read aloud but actually maybe it's more appropriate if Bryony reads it aloud now can you read it okay I I get excited Dolly Alderton is going to read a bit of my book I'm going to write something so embarrassing now that I need you to promise me in advance that you won't judge me for it I know, I know, you're not the judgy type at all. And by now, I feel like we're friends, so I probably shouldn't worry. But I still feel completely mortified by what I'm about to write, so go easy on me. Okay, right, here goes. Are you ready? Reader, I thought that if I married someone, my life would be complete. (laughs) I thought that if I got a boyfriend, all my problems would be solved and all my problems would go away. In short, I thought the only thing that could save me from all my problems was a man. I just, I really was thinking about how much that was lodged into my, into the, into the very foundations of my belief system and identity from such a young age and how desperately, how how much desperate need I had for someone Mm. to tell me otherwise. I think it's particularly lovely that you're writing that as a happily married woman as well. Well, that chapter was really um, inspired by your book. Dolly. Because I read that and I'm like, oh my God, how much would I have loved this? Like when I was in my, like it just, oh, I needed that book. And, um, and you know, and and a lot of that, this book is inspired by things I've learned from younger people who are, um, bringing stuff out now and what I've sort of, you know, because it's an amazing, like I, you know, I follow Instagrammers who are, you know, body positive, body acceptance and, yeah, and and that book for me was like a really important moment of of realize like a thread in that kind of journey towards realizing that you know a relationship is only ever part of you; mm. it's not all of you. Mm. And I remember meeting my husband and getting pregnant and being like, "Look at me! I have a bugaboo <laughs> and I have a flat and clap on." <laughs> And I have a husband who watches rugby. <laughs> I am like, I have got this licked, guys. And then it's like, fast forward two years, off she goes to rehab. <laughs> like, I thought, I really did think, I was like, well, that'll, that, all know, my problems have gone preg- away. Pregnancy will do for me what £8,000 of rehab does for other people. <laughs> Because, I mean, pregnancy makes women feel great. No I know. hormones that. I'm like, why did I think that this was going to be the answer? And, you know, I... 
<laughs> it embarrasses me now. But I no, I, I think it's I think it's so good you put that in so the book I. because actually I think when you're writing a teenage manual or as you say it's not a manifesto, it, it you know it feels like a kind of very user friendly manual. It's not something you would immediately think to put in maybe and yeah. and so I wasn't necessarily expecting that as one of your lessons and that was one of my favorites but I think because you go on in that chapter to talk about all the stories that women are raised mm. on mm. that that have romantic conclusion and I too am convinced that most of the stories that we consume from fairy tales to Hollywood blockbusters even to TV comedy I think that that onus on being chosen and a romantic ending is massively to blame mm. for a huge amount of collective and cultural female neuroses, mm. self-worth and sense of purpose. Absolutely. Something that Elizabeth um, Day says in How to Fail, yeah. you know, when her marriage failed, she felt that her, she'd failed life. Mm. you know like she didn't know look how to... at her now yeah I mean she hasn't failed life <laughs> but how do we debunk that how do we start erasing those stories well I think it is well I think oh god it sounds so cheesy it is self love isn't it it's, mm. it's it's knowing your worth also knowing what love is it's like love is I was like, oh, someone's going to come and rescue me and and there'll be thunderclaps and, you know, and it's not. It's not like that. You have to rescue yourself. You have to rescue yourself. <laughs> like, I, the person, you know, who was going to save me was me. Yeah. I wonder how different life could be if we... I mean, I never want to kind of rewind the clocks because turn back the clocks because life is life and, you know, you, you learn what you learn. But... Like, just imagine the possibility if you if you didn't have at the back of your head yeah. that thing of, I failed because I don't have a rugby watching, not playing, yeah. <laughs> you know, a boyfriend, a husband and a bugaboo. Like, what Like what would be, how different? Like, maybe I would have had relationships with women. I don't know. Like, what, like, what, like it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. And that isn't to say that, but also, like, I think it's really important to be able to kind of nurture friendships with men. Like, there's a whole, you know, we talk about in, 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 um, that it isn't all just about sex and and just enjoy all the different relationships we you know a relationship isn't necessarily a romantic one as your yeah. book kind of so brilliantly showed and it's i don't know i just it, it's an interesting one because i don't i don't i don't like I, I also don't want women who really want you know who kind of fantasize about the the bugaboo and the, <laughs> and the happy ever after to feel bad for fantasizing about no, that. No, of course. You know, like, that's fine. I think, I, I think it's just being allowed any dream, but just realizing that's not the only dream. Yeah. Again, you know, I think it'd be really sad if that conversation went the way where you would feel shamed for wanting to get married and have children. You know, if that's, if that, mm. it's just making it a choice yeah. rather than a, you know, as we say, the default. I'm always so aware at this time of year, and I'm sure I will be forever, that this is the beginning of GCSE season. Oh, I just want to be sick. Which is, to this day, one of the hardest <laughs> cerebral challenges of my life. Hardest ever. Yeah. Ever. And I was wondering, I'm sure that we have a lot of listeners who are preparing for that, I think, enormous challenge. What do you remember of that time, and what advice would you give to teenagers going through it? Well, A-levels as well, actually. It's almost A-level yeah. time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I remember... I still think I remember my, like, examination board number. Oh, my God. Do you know? It's a long time ago. Yeah. Like, I remember thinking that it, everything, everything was... Um, relied on on these exams and that if if it didn't 
if I didn't do well and then that was it, life was over. Mm-hmm. And I, I also, when I was writing this book, I was like very, you know, we are not, we are more than grades and we are more than rankings. And I think that's really important to remember. And the other thing I thought was, we hear, don't we, we hear all the time about the people who did, you know, the people who did brilliantly at school. Or alternatively, we hear about the people who did terribly at school, like the John Majors, the, the, um, John Major, huh? He did. He got two O levels, and really? that became prime minister. The Richard Bransons, you know, all those people yeah. that failed. But we don't hear about but that. Also, has a big romantic. Yeah, like, like, oh, like, but look how well yeah, they did. Yeah. That's what, tend to what, be men as well. What we don't hear about are the load of us in the middle who just sort of were very mediocre <laughs> <laughs> and just got loads of like C's and D. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, like people just, you know, you just like most likely to be walked past. <laughs> what I was at school do you know what I mean and it doesn't how you're doing now is not reflective of how you're going to be doing in 10 years time or 20 years time I'd also say as well that I was um I was really academic at school and that didn't make my life any better like for anyone listening I got straight A's that didn't help me get any job or any university acceptance yeah but like it didn't mean that I you know it didn't mean that life was necessarily easy from those grades and that is sold to you that if you kind of ace your GCSEs then I think that your best your best is the best I interviewed Andy Murray Sir Andy Murray I should say recently and he was talking about um he doesn't know if he's ever going to be able to play tennis again. He was talking about the year before he won Wimbledon and like the whole nation's hopes were pinned on him and he lost to Federer and he was crying and he was like devastated. And then he had a moment where he go, hang on a second. I'm doing my best. I can't do any more. If I don't win, is the world going to end? No. And he said the moment he accepted that he might not win was well, obviously was the moment that he did win because he went on a year later to win it but it was that kind of thing of you can only do your best like you're not um you know and that's not reflective of your case he said you know just because if you don't win something or get the best grades doesn't make you a bad person or a, an unlikable person and it's really ba- sad that we because he was talking about his kind of narrative character arc of kind of like people person columnists didn't like and then he wins Wimbledon and he's suddenly the nation's hero and he's like it's really sad that it should take winning for people to like me you know because I'm the same person essentially and I was thinking god that's a really kind of it's a good motto I mean it's easy for him to say because he's won Wimbledon twice now but (laughs) I do think that thing of like your best is the best the outcome of your life is not dependent on whatever turns up in an envelope next August yeah. because of how you perform today or tomorrow or whatever in your biology GCSE. I can't even remember what I got in my biology GCSE. <laughs> I mean, I think I got a B. Actually, I was like, I was like B, 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 like it was, it was so, it was just so uninspiring. And 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 let me tell you something, girls. I'm quite inspiring now. <laughs> yeah? So don't you worry about your GCSEs or your A-levels. You just be you. I think that's a good note to end on. I am quite inspiring. Thank you so much, we Bryony. Really You're quite Bryony. inspiring, I just want to say. Thank you for having me. I'm, like, totally fangirling. If any of our listeners have younger sisters or teenage daughters or even just fancy, as Brani puts it, a warm hug, go buy this book. You Got This, A Fabulously Fearless Guide to Being You is published by Ren and Rook and it is out now thank you very much for listening to the Hilo you can rate, review and subscribe it helps boost us in the 
charts and helps other people find us. You can email us, thehighlowshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehighlowshow. Bye-bye. Goodbye from us and goodbye from our darling Doris Day. Oh, the Deadwood stages are rolling on over the plains With the curtains flapping and the driver a-slapping the reins A beautiful sky, a wonderful day Whip crack away, whip crack away, whip crack away Oh, the Deadwood stages are heading on over the hills Where the engine arrows are thicker than porcupine quills Dangerous land, no time to delay So whip crack away, whip crack away, whip crack away